This is the Small Moves Podcast with your host, Jason Hertzberger, Episode 74. The Siege of Acre was the first significant counterattack by King Guy of Jerusalem to the losses that the kingdom had experienced to Saladin, the leader of the Muslims in Syria and Egypt, and formed part of what later became known as the Third Crusade. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Thanks, John! You're listening to the Small Moves Podcast. Small steps for big progress. With your host, Jason Hertzberger. Your next step starts now. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the show. I'm really glad that you're here and so glad to be back in the swing with the interviews for the Small Moves podcast. Today is a special interview for me. I'm interviewing one of my best friends, Professor John Hassler. John is an associate professor at the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Before that, when he was living locally near we are in Baltimore, he was a full professor at Morgan State University a history professor at Morgan State University, which is a historic black college university here in the Baltimore area. John is one of those people that you, I'm sure that we all sort of have lingering around in our lives somewhere, which is a friend of yours, but also someone that makes you feel incredibly dumb pretty much every time you talk to them, not at all on purpose. Uh, he's, he's one of the smartest people that I know. I always love chatting with him about history and politics and basically anything that really comes up. He recently wrote a book called The Siege of Acre, which is what the little jingle at the beginning of this show is about. The Siege of Acre is the first it was the first the book itself was the first comprehensive history on the most decisive military campaign of the third crusade and one of the longest wartime sieges in the history of the middle ages the middle ages is john's primary focus with a particular interest in 12th century warfare this is a really interesting conversation. I love chatting it up with John. Uh, he does a magical job at avoiding some rather baiting questions that I have to apply some of the some of his knowledge with regards to history to today's world and today's politics. He do, he he avoids those questions like a savant, which I always appreciate, which I always appreciate watching. But we we had a wonderful conversation here. The history of the book is great. The history of him being an author and sort of how how to write for the masses versus to write for academia is a big part of our conversation here because that's always been something of a thing that sticks in my crawl where people that are more from the full academic world somewhat look down their noses at writing something for the general public and my, I do not at all hide those feelings in this conversation and John has a really great perspective on that and he sort of flips the script on me on that point a little bit which I always do appreciate when my guests are able to do that. I don't want to hold you up too much but this this was a great conversation. I hope you stick with it, and I will talk to you on the flip side. That said, I give you John Hustler. Here we go. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and you're listening to the Small Moves Podcast, small steps for big progress. Let's prepare to ignite. Hey, John, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Yeah, man. Now, the 
audience heard a little bit of a snapshot about your background and how we know each other and how you were annoyingly the tallest member of my groom's party at my wedding five years ago. But um, besides that, they don't really know anything about you. So why don't you just give us a little bit of a snapshot about you and your background and your location and all of that wonderful stuff. All Who right, the hell is so, Dr. John Hostler? Yeah, yeah. So I am a medieval historian by trade. Um, PhD in medieval history from the University of Delaware. And I've been a college teacher teaching at the university level since 1999, including my graduate teaching. So I've been in the business for a couple decades. Uh, I've studied warfare, military history in the Middle Ages, including, oh, England, France, the British Isles, the Crusades, the Middle East, those sorts of things in the 12th century. And uh, in terms of where I live, I currently live in Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, this is the ninth state that I've lived in. Uh, okay. The other ones are um, multiple and varied and um, kind of all over the place. <laughs> what 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 took you to the different states? I know, obviously, you know, you were probably born in one of them. But besides that, I, I besides was, that one. Yeah, I, I was born in a state, not in a beaker, you know, in a, you know, in a um, uh, laboratory up in space. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so my father was in finance and um, and moved to take um, better job opportunities as he went down the line. So we went with him and okay. um, and most of the moves were uh, were pretty good. I, I would say as far as I can remember, every move was better. I don't remember the early states so well because I was two, but um, but the later ones, they were they were all better. And then I finally ended up in. Duluth, Minnesota, northern Minnesota, and that's where I graduated from high school. Um, so I suppose that would be home if I had to call anything home. But my parents aren't even there anymore. So what on earth? What on earth is Duluth, Minnesota better than? Oh, Duluth, Minnesota. You know, it has its problems, um, but it <laughs> is better than some places. They, it is on Lake Superior. It is very beautiful. <laughs> there's skiing. There's wildlife. It's not a bad place to grow up. Fair point. Um, but it's one of those places where some people, if you get, if you never leave Duluth, then you never leave Duluth. You know what I mean? You know, people get stuck there forever and think that's all there is for the world. For sure. And yeah. uh, fortunately for me, I, I got out before that happened. <laughs> <laughs> and you but got, it's a great place to raise a family. <laughs> now you got out when you went to college. Is that when you moved away from Duluth? Yes. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. And that was to Iowa? That was to Iowa State University. Gotcha. In Iowa. Gotcha. That's right. I've, I've seen some of the college photos with the t-shirts. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's a school <laughs> across the front. So. Not much of a football team, but we do okay in basketball. <laughs> now, um, one of the, one of the reasons, and we're going to get into a lot of different stuff, but one, one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you on, especially now is you just released an, a new book. So I'd like, yes. I'd like to talk about that first. Just want to get a little bit more of a background about that because, you know, as you know about me, when it comes to my, my level of knowledge about medieval history, I know, you know, nothing or nothing, that, nothing that I haven't learned on uh, the hardcore history podcast with Dan Carlin. So if it was, if it hasn't really been covered in that, it's nothing that I really know too much about. So the new book is called the siege of acre. Yes. The siege of acre. What, what is that? Where is that? What the hell is acre? Oh, okay. So Acre is the modern day Israeli city of Akko. Akko. Okay. Uh, if you look at a map of Israel, Akko is north of Haifa. It's right by the border of Lebanon. Okay. So it's in the north. And so, so, Akko, so, so scenic town with not much going on right there, right now. Um, yeah, yeah. Nothing ever going on there, like hundreds of rockets falling and giving you. <laughs> that stuff. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting town because it's, it's really cool place to visit. It used to be, I, I would say much more important than it is today. I mean, it used to be the, one of the major ports on the Levantine coast. Uh, today that's really Haifa. Haifa is the industrial center of Israel. It's the, um, you know, there, there's a, a phrase that the Israelis say, um, you know, um, in, um, uh, Jerusalem praise, Tel Aviv plays and Haifa works. So that's that's where the major port is. That's where the Israeli Navy is based. And so little Akko, which used to be really critical in the Middle Ages and even before, um, has sort of become more of a um, sort of a, more of a fishing town. Uh, you see little fishing boats and things like that. Why do you think that is? Usually, usually when towns have been well established, especially that far back, that trajectory tends, at least from what I've seen, that trajectory tends to continue. Or, like if the towns are not destroyed in some invasion, one way or the other, they usually tend to keep on that trajectory as opposed to sort of losing their luster to another town that's relatively nearby. Like what? Why? What was? When was that transition, or why was that transition? Well, that's you touched on it. Um, Acre at the time, as it was known, was um, was was conquered several times. In fact, a, a friend of mine has just released an edited volume on essays, and it's titled "The Falls of Acre." Falls. Um, <laughs> simply because it has been conquered so many times. And Acre most famously was uh, in 1291. It was the very last Christian outpost in the Middle East. Mm, and okay. it was uh, it was conquered by the Mamluks. And that's when it ceased to be, um, for the from the Christian viewpoint anyway, it ceased to be a sort of an important place. It was the seat of the kingdom of Jerusalem. And then that all came to an end. And, uh, and then it becomes Mamluk land. And the, the Mamluks were ruling out of Egypt. And uh, weren't going to use it as a capital city, and neither were the um, the Turks that came after them. So it's, it's one of those places that had a, quite a long time in the sun, I think, um, you know, a couple centuries, where it was a very important city. But, but um, when you study world history, you discover that there are so many places that used to be really, really important cities mm-hmm. and are no longer. <laughs> and they just get eclipsed by other things for, you know, it depends on where does the trade path go? Uh, what is being traded? Where do the migrations come in and out? You know, uh, what are the politics? Uh, some cities are important and then resist a new political regime and they cease to be important later on. Um, so, you know, these these things happen. And um, and so Acre had its time in the limelight. But um, but now it's it's still a wonderful place to visit. And you go and you can see the walls um, that are built up around it that the Turks had uh, constructed. Um, it's, it's really kind of magical to see it, but, um, but Haifa is definitely, you know, that's where the millions of people are. Got it. Did, did, did any time in its history, did it ever encounter any, any bit of the, uh, the Western expansion of the, uh, the Mongols during their sort of push to chase the, chase the Europeans further, further out? Or did the, did they ever touch base in that area or did they not make it that far? No, the Mongols never made it that far because in, um, in 1260, you have the Battle of Ain Jalut, uh, where the Mamluks decisively defeat the Mongols and stop their advance. Um, so they never quite got to the coastline. No. I, I mean, you're picking your poison then. Do you want the Mamluks to conquer you or the Mongols? Um, you know, it's six of one, half dozen of another. Now, I'm, I'm expressing my ignorance here, but I don't know Mamluks. Who are the Mamluks? Ah. Uh, so the Mamluks were, uh, they were originally warrior slaves in Egypt. Okay. Uh, who ended up uh, t- taking over the uh, the throne in Cairo? Okay, so and, they came uh, from they, the east. Okay, right. Yeah, and then they um, and then they rise up and they end up conquering all of the um, um you know, most of uh, what we look at today is uh, Egypt and Israel, uh, Syria, Jordan, those kinds of places. 
Yeah. And there, there were Mamluk rulerships, actually, not just in that region, but you actually have Mamluk uh, um, uh, control of India four times. Um, so they're one of those groups of people that were really, really important in world history and do not get talked about nearly as much as uh, as, as should happen. That's interesting. Now, now, what was what was their <clears throat> what was their inherent style of warfare? Did they have one, or was it because because they were slaves, they just sort of had sort of a hodgepodge? Because like everybody knows, the Mongols being you know they were known for their missile warfare, their horseback and missile warfare. You know, obviously the midi- medieval you know England they were known for their knights, uh, whether it be horseback or not, armored armored knights. Like, what were the Mamelukes known for, or were they known for anything particular? Yeah, Eastern fighting styles are roughly, I mean, I don't want to say they're they're similar because there are differences, but you're still talking about mobile harassment warfare. Okay. Um, so it's 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 horseback and it's it's archery. Um, the tactics can vary and the way they deploy their troops can vary, but it's still in that style of 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 mobile harassment. Gotcha. And they learned that from their from their masters and from the other armies fighting around them. Gotcha. Now and so that that's that style extended into North Africa. Oh sure, yeah. I did. I yeah, did not know that. Like when, when I when I hear about that style, I think of the Huns and I think of the Mongols and and the Scythians, like the the Scythians, the groups that sort of came out of that that sort of the mm-hmm. steppe region. I didn't necessarily know that it, that that style of warfare extended that far south or southwest. Sure, sure. And like I said, there's you know there's there's variations. If you look at how the Huns did it, now the Mongols did, how the Mamluks do it. There are there are differences that military historians would find very important. And you know how many, how big are your divisions? When the horses ride forward, how do they do it? How do they discharge the missiles? Is it kind of a you know sweeping wave? Is it more like a Parthian shot where you ride and then you pivot and turn around quickly? You know those things all differ. But I I think the way the better way to think about it would be it's it's step warfare basically. Mm-hmm. So if you're from the step land. You're from big, broad expanses of territory uh, without a lot of um, natural water sources mm-hmm. and mobility and range are all really important. And so you see that in northern China and um, you know, what we call the Mongolian lands. You see that in the Middle East. You see it in North Africa. Um, you actually see it on the, you know, in the Saharan desert in places, mm-hmm. um, that idea of being able to range and, and control a lot of territory. Uh, and water your horses in places that the enemy doesn't know about. Got so, the, you know, the Mongols used to just sucker the Chinese. They'd just uh, <laughs> ride towards the Chinese crossbowmen. The Chinese would follow, and the Mongols just lead them out into the middle of nowhere, just, you know, rolling grassy hills. Mm-hmm. And then when the Chinese got tired, and the horses would suddenly show up again, and they'd be all around them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the, that group, uh, I know this has absolutely nothing to do with your book, but that I'm I'm just so fascinated by their that that nation's military history like the the mongols are just so fascinating to me just the I, the affirmation podcast that i'm that i mentioned earlier you know with dan carlin's show he he's sparked so much interest in so many just far-ranging areas of history and that was one of the that was one of the shows that just really grabbed me and that that era of history is just really grabbing now that that came after that came after your area era of expertise per se, right? Because you were focused a little bit earlier before the Mongols. Yeah, I don't really research the 13th century, and that's really the uh, the great coming out of the Mongols, the late 12th, early 13th century. But also more specifically, I just I don't research Central Asian history. Um, you really have to study different languages and, sure. and things to do that. So um, that's sort of out of my wheelhouse. Yeah. Are you saying you're as a, as a medievalist, you need to kind of know about all these things, generally speaking. But um, 
but I'm not there um, writing, you know, the minutiae of Mongol history. I'll leave that to other people like Peter Jackson, who just released it. Just a terrific book. Uh, if you're interested in the Mongols, write down Peter Jackson because he's currently the guy. Oh. I am writing that down right now. <laughs> now, the 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 see, wh- how did you co- how did you come across the topic of the book? Like, obvi- obviously, it falls into your era and your range of expertise. But why why did you choose this particular topic? Like, what what was it about this semi semi obscure town that made that made for the topic of the book as opposed to you know any other battle throughout the middle middle ages that are in a more populated area that are more internationally known region or city or what, what was it about this particular battle or this particular town that drew, that drew enough content from you to generate a book like this? Well, I think there um, were really three things that drew me to it. One of them is the, is the connection to, sort of the, the broader world that I had already been looking at. Uh, so I had written a book about Henry II, the King of England. He was the father of Richard the Lionheart, who fought at the Siege of Acre okay. um, and who went on the Third Crusade. And I had been you know, publishing other things just in the late 12th century, which is when the Third Crusade happened. Um, and so sort of naturally, you know, you're studying England, you're studying France, and then you see English and French armies departing on crusade. And the temptation is you sort of want to follow them to and see what they're doing. And, yeah, follow them down the road. Yeah, yeah. So that that's one thing. Um, the, the, a second would definitely be the um, the the sort of the missed prominence of the siege of Acre. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, everybody knows about the Third Crusade, mm-hmm. and there are certain moments during the Third Crusade that are very famous um, and have been written of extensively. Richard's um, battle with Saladin, the Battle of Arsuf, would be one example. Okay. Um, the siege of Jaffa would be another example. The conquest of Cyprus. I mean, there are these things that people have talked about ad nauseum. Um, Acre has not been given that treatment because it was the first engagement of the Crusade. It, you know, it's how it started, and you, you always kind of want to talk about the ends of wars. And you know, if you ask somebody, you said, oh, "Okay, Operation Barbarossa, Hitler marches into Germany." Or into, into Russia, right? Okay, that's great. Um, give me the first five battles of Operation Barbaros. No one has any earthly idea. Yeah. yeah. No, no, you know, the specialists, nobody's going to know that. They're the lay people off the street because wh- why do? What they do know is Stalingrad, mm-hmm. right? What they do know is the stalled march on Moscow. What they do know is the siege of Leningrad. They know these big moments kind of later on, you know. Sure. Um, and, you know, Acres at the beginning. And so even though it's a really long siege, it's almost two years long. When it's over, it's a victory for the Crusaders, but then it's like, okay, on with the campaign. We, we got to keep going. And I think because it's that initial fight, I think that means people, it sort of eluded people for a while because it was just the beginning of the story and people want to know how the story ends. Yeah. Uh, so that's part of it. And then the third thing I think is the, really the, I would say the world historical nature of the siege. Uh, I make the point in the book that this was, um, you could argue, uh, if you leave the Indians and the Chinese out of the equation for the moment, uh, which we don't necessarily, <laughs> we shouldn't necessarily do. But if you argue from like a European perspective, Acre was the center of the world for two years. It was, um, you had armies from Europe, you had armies from the Middle East, you had armies from North Africa. So you've got three continents mm-hmm. fighting in the same place. And there were four heads of state fighting against each other. Um, three of them Christian and one of them Muslim. And the ones who are there Three of them are some of the most famous leaders in history. I mean, Philip Augustus of France, Richard the Lionheart, and Saladin. 
Um, I mean, these are the guys, and here they are on a field of battle at a um, siege lasting two years with this, um, you know, what we would call in the army, we would say sort of, you know, coalition warfare going on, right? I mean, you know, Saladin doesn't just have the Egyptians with him. He has Kurds, he has Arabs, he has Mesopotamians, he has people from all over the Middle East, and the Europeans are, you know, Italians, and there's the Genoese, there's the Venetians, um, there are the French, there's people from the Low Country, there's Germans, there's Danes, there's English, there's Welsh. Um, so you have really this spot captured the world's attention for two years. One of the, um, it was the equivalent of, of world war. It, it was the equivalent of a world war, basically. Yeah. If in th- a yeah. sense you could, at least in that one spot, you could say that. I mean, one of the chroniclers says, um, uh, acre is certain to win eternal fame because the entire world gathered to fight for her. Hmm. Um, you know, when that happens, when everybody converges on one spot, it's just, it's just very interesting. And so all those things combined, the idea that I already knew a little bit about the characters involved, um, the fact that it was it was this important gathering and then somehow had kind of been missed by people. I mean, that's what you want in a historical inquiry. You want something that's interesting, something that hasn't been done um, and something that's important. And so it all kind of fell into line for me. Now, you mentioned you mentioned that it was the first battle in the thir- in the Third Crusades. Talk to me. Talk to me like I'm a dummy for a second. That was this something that say an English army came across and then something sparked right then and there that caused the start of a siege. And because of the outcome of that siege that effectively sparked the crusades or the war or was effectively to use modern terminology was war declared. And then six months later, the British showed up at the, at the gates of acre. Yeah. It's more like the latter. Okay. The, um, the cause of the third crusade was, July 4th, 1187, two years before it began. Um, that's the day of Saladin's great triumph over the army of the kingdom of Jerusalem at the Battle of Hattin. Okay. Which is one of those famous world battles at the horns of Hattin. Saladin destroys uh, some 20,000 crusaders um, and really reduces the, uh, the power of the Jerusalem kingdom. Basically, they have no army left to defend themselves. And as soon as news of that gets back to the West, as the story goes, the Pope hears the news that Saladin has wiped out the Christian army, has a heart attack, and dies on the spot. Oh, jeez. <laughs> heart attack and dies on the spot is replaced by a new Pope, and the new Pope immediately begins to um, start the process for calling for a crusade. Now, while he's doing that, and in the process of that, Saladin marches on, and his culminating move is in the fall of 1187, so just shortly after Hattin, Saladin retakes the city of Jerusalem retakes the holy city. And um, when that happens, you have sort of a one-two punch, right? You've got the uh, Jerusalem is at the mercy of the Sultan of Egypt um, and the holy city, which contains the the sepulcher church, the tomb of Christ, uh, is now in the hands of the Muslims. And so that's those are your sparks right there. And um, the crusading calls go out. Acre ends up being the, uh, the point of first contact with Saladin's armies. And um, who, who and so was, everybody sailed to that point. Who was in control of Jerusalem before Saladin took the city? It was the kingdom of Jerusalem. Okay. It had been captured. It had been captured 88 years before by the first crusade. Okay. So yeah. what happened during, like, again, talk to me like I'm a dummy here. Cause like the, and also for people that are listening that might not be as well versed in the crusades. So the first crusade was, what did you say? 60, 60 years earlier. 68 years before that's when it finished yeah they took the city in 1099 
So the first yeah. crusade, they took the king, the kingdom of Jerusalem. The third crusade was in response to the Muslims taking this, the kingdom of Jerusalem. It was when, tech, tech. Yeah. Generally. Yes. Technically it was after the battle of Hattin. That's really the cause. Okay. Once they realized that Jerusalem was defenseless, they called up the crusade to support it. And it's just while they were doing it, Saladin took the Holy city as a matter of course, wow. it was really the um, disaster at Hattin that did it. So is it that that was effectively just an opportunistic take. It's like, Hey, Hey, we're here. It's weak. Let's go. Basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And you know, whatever, whatever the movie of kingdom of heaven suggests, um, you know, <laughs> Saladin did, did not have a lot of trouble taking Jerusalem. <laughs> <laughs> now but that's, that's, that's what that whole move. That's what that whole movie is about, right? He gets Jerusalem in the end. Right. And so you have to imagine while he's receiving Jerusalem from Orlando Bloom, um, the armies are gathering in Western Europe to mm-hmm. sail out against. Him. So that was a little, so quick. sort of, so my book is sort of part, I guess it's sort of part two of that story. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, so 88 years apart are these effectively these two events. What was the second cruise? Like what, what triggered the second crusade and what was sort of the culmination of that? Cause it sounds like the one, like it, it was kind of like the, like episode one was big. Episode three was surprisingly big. What about episode, what happened in episode two? <laughs> yeah. Episode two was a flop. Um, <laughs> So, so we have to back up a little bit. So after Jerusalem was taken by the first crusade, yep. they capture a swath of land, um, which is not very big and it's surrounded by millions of Muslim inhabitants. And so the idea is, well, now that you've captured this land, how do you hold on to it? Mm-hmm. And the, the decision was made up uh, to create four, what are known as the crusader states. Okay. Kingdom of Jerusalem is one of those states. And okay. the other ones are um, the County of Tripoli the Principality of Antioch and the County of Edessa. The second crusade involves that last one, the County of Edessa. Uh, Edessa had is kind of sticks out to the east. It was a very vulnerable state. And in the 1140s, a warlord named uh, Zengi came and, and took Edessa. He captured it. And so the idea is, while well, we had four crusader states, one of them is now gone, so we're down to three. Let's launch a crusade and get that number four one back. Okay. And that was the idea. And it was a miserable failure because they did not get the fourth one back. The um, German army marched to the Holy Land and got destroyed. <laughs> then the French army marched to the Holy Land and got destroyed. And then they all went back home with their tails behind their legs. That's a very um, sort of glib description of the Second Crusade. But, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's sort of what happened. And the uh, wife of the King of France may or may not have slept with her cousin uh, going there or back. There's a controversy about that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's one of those where they you say you know just sort of best not to remember that one. Maybe <laughs> wait for next time. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of like the second Jurassic Park movie. Like the first one was amazing. The third one was yeah. funny, oddly comical for the topic, but was actually pretty good. The second one was just tre- terrible, treasure. It, it was awful. Like yeah, je- yeah. <laughs> and you can sort of gauge the importance of these things by the books that are written about it. Yeah. There are a million books written about the first crusade. Like there's a it reason I don't know just about a, the second one. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't until just a few years ago, a colleague of mine, Jonathan Phillips at Royal Holloway in London, finally wrote a book on the second crusade and it's the book. It's the only book. The book. <laughs> uh, and it's a great book, but you sit there and you say, wow, boy, it sure took a long time for someone to really do the right kind of uh, work on this and produce a comprehensive history of the second crusade because, you know, I don't know if it's who wants to talk about the losers or 
Um, you know, I'm, you know, there's different reasons why people don't do, um, projects, but, um, but so that's, what's kind of strange about it. And oddly enough, there is still today, no single book on the third crusade either. Hmm. We don't have one. Um, we have one on the fourth crusade. We have one on the fifth crusade. Uh, we do not have one on the third crusade. So, what, uh, so what are you, what are you working yeah, on? Right? What are you working on right now, John? Not that, not that, <laughs> not that no way. I, I have a, I have a friend who's doing that and, um, I'll, I'll let him work on that in peace, but, um, that's a massive, huge thing. And, um, I deliberately said, I want to write about acre, but I don't want to take on the whole crusade because I'm just um, not prepared to do that at this point. Fair um, point. That, that's a massive, 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 massive project. And I think no matter how you do it, you're going to get criticized for missing something. Oh, of course. Well, just like, just like in any book of substance about any event in history, you're going to get criticized by somebody for missing something because there's only so many pages in a book. It's like, and even if you write it longer, the publisher says to cut it down. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's like, I would, it's like, I would like to write, it's like, I would like to write a book about the election of 2016. It's going to be 17,000 pages long. It's like, <laughs> but we can't do that. It has to be, it has to be, you know, the, the spine has to be this thick so that it looks roughly the size on a bookshelf. So, you know, that's what we need. We need another book about the 2016 election. I just think it's been undercover. What, I did, just don't did something think people are talking about it. Did something happen? It was like, did, <laughs> no, I'm, did so, I'm so, kidding. It was like, did something, did something happen in 2016? I, I haven't, I hadn't heard. <laughs> It's like an old joke that um, I had a, a colleague told me. He was talking to a publisher once, and I forget who the publisher was, but said something about um, talking about, well, yeah, we need to do books. He said something like, you know, and we only have uh, 15 biographies of Braxton Bragg in the Civil War. Somebody should write another one. It's like, oh, well, yeah, because you need 16 or 20 or 25 biographies of Braxton Bragg. Well, right? And we, keep, <laughs> we keep writing about the same people over and over again. You know, if you go to the Lincoln Library, they have this stack of books written about Lincoln that um, on in the middle of this spiral staircase. And it it goes up 50, 75 feet. I mean, it's Jesus. unbelievable. It's just, people just keep writing about Lincoln because apparently there's still things we don't know about Abraham Lincoln. I don't know. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's hear my cynicism. <laughs> like, and, and it's a wonder. I mean, and you, and you, you like, you write books on historical topics. So like, it's, it's interesting to hear your perspective on that. But my, my question is like, is that because it's a bit, is it because it's a big event or a big name that's an, e that's easy to sell copies of, or is it because these historical characters are legitimately so complicated that they're a completely different human being to whoever it is that's reading about their historical background. I mean, the, like if I, if I were a who's like rich private school, white kid reading about the third crusade versus, you know, a poor, un, you know, underprivileged black kid in the inner city reading about it versus a Muslim who's like a Muslim immigrant that moved here from Libya versus like my perspective on that event would be drastically different. My sources, if I was writing a book on that topic, God forbid, my sources would be drastically different. Like, is that, is that part of it? Or is it that, you know, Abraham Lincoln or the first crusade were really actually that interesting? Or is there just a lot just is there just too much subjectivity in the books i i don't know i mean i think it depends on the character there's so many reasons i mean you could are you could say one reason that um american subjects are so popular because the sources are in english 
right? Okay, um, so it's, it's easy for someone to get into that. And even if you do the archival work, if you can read some calligraphy, it's not too bad. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's one example. But, but then again, I know Amer- I have American historian colleagues who, who work in several languages. So it's not always that. Um, I think the prestige of the individual, I mean, every year there's a new biography on Julius Caesar. Yeah. Our sources on Caesar have not fundamentally changed mm-hmm. in the last, last several decades. Um, and yet we need a new book on Caesar. We need a new book on the fall of Rome. I mean, they just keep coming out. I think saleability is a big part of it. You sure. can sell Caesar pretty easily because everybody's heard of him. You know, we all learned from Bill and Ted. He's that salad dressing dude. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so even people who, 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 you know, who aren't, um, you know, you want to say classically educated in Greek and Roman history, you know, they know who the guy is and they know they can sell copies of it. Sure. Um, so, yeah, so that it's goes like, into it. It's like, the, it's like the latest biography of Benjamin Franklin. Same story. It's like, well, Christ, everybody knows Benjamin Franklin and everybody knew that he liked a lot of really cool shit. So let's see if this book has another cool thing that, you know, he did and yeah. just on and on right. it goes. And sometimes there's a nugget of something new. Um, you know, sometimes there is, and sometimes there isn't. And, um, it's when they dig up something new then I'm interested, but uh, I don't always know that it requires a new book. Mm-hmm. You know, if you find out that Abraham Lincoln, um, oh, oh I don't know. He, uh, never trimmed the fingernail on his left pinky finger. Um, <laughs> and there's a document that attests this and we never knew this before about Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Well, as a historian, I say, that's interesting. Write up a nice peer reviewed article about it. Um, you know, talk about, does that really mean that we need a new book in light of this new evidence? Um, you know, with Lincoln, the answer is usually yes. Uh, we're going to get a new book about Lincoln because yeah, I think, so, you know, I heard like, a, like, um, link, link, Lincoln and the four inch pinky. <laughs> like, like I can, I can see the book title and the thing is like Lincoln and the four inch pinky with a question mark. I'm like, right. And we talk oh, about, always we talk about that. We talk about wrong. that for 272 <laughs> pages. <laughs> yep. Well, you know, I heard a, um, I was at a conference in St. Louis a couple weeks ago. Um, and I heard the historian Jeffrey Parker from, um, Ohio state university. He's just a first rate historian. He's fantastic. And he was, he gave a hilarious talk on emperor Charles V. Mm-hmm. And he started by saying, you know, I did a Google search in all these different countries, versions of Google and came up with, you know, when I typed in Charles V and ended up being something like 14 million hits or something. Right. <laughs> and so he said, um, he said, so we, this begs the question, do we really need another book on Charles V? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Given that there's so much. And then he gets back to it. That's at the beginning of his talk. And at the end of the talk, he comes back to it and says, so do we really need another book on Charles V? And he puts up a slide, which has a cover of his forthcoming book on Charles V. <laughs> and he says, well, to get the answer, you're going to have to read my book. And <laughs> it, was, it was just a marvelous moment because he's at the same time, I think he actually does have a lot of new information on Charles V, but he's also taking a jab at that whole notion of yeah, he's mocking get, it. You know, sure. He's mocking it while doing it at the same time. Yeah. Um, you know, with impressive verve, you know, yeah, it's like, do we really need another book? Well, Yes. And I'm writing that book and you can find out more about it this fall. <laughs> and it comes out and the price is, and you can find it at these convenient retailers. So. <laughs> Speaking of convenient retailers, amazon.com, your book recently released on Amazon in the U S but it was out in the European market or the UK before it was released here. Um, yes. out of goofy curiosity, why was that? Like did, it was, it was published in an American press, it was published no. by an American author. Ah, see, that's the, 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 it was published with Yale University Press, but Yale has two corporate offices. One is in 
New Haven, Connecticut, and the other one is in London. Okay. And I was working with the staff in London, and that's why I came out in the UK first. Got it. Oh, yeah. If I had been working with the New Haven staff, then it would have come out here first. Got it. Got it. Yep. Now, that's the only reason. Gotcha. Now, how how has how has the book been received there versus here in the U.S. thus far? I know that this information is completely new. I mean, the book just, but both both markets just released in the last what thirty days. Uh, let's see. In the UK, it came out in May, so it's been out for a while. Okay. Um, it's gotten um, it's gotten it's done very well in the UK. The uh, there was one um, one colleague uh, came out and took a pretty public shot at me in a newspaper, oh, which God. is uh, you know. He took a shot at the book, which is his privilege. He can do that if he likes. Uh, but everyone else has been uh, very praising of it. Um, so it was reviewed in the London Times and, and various places. And um, yeah, it's the uh, number one Crusades book right now on Amazon.co.uk. Uh, um, in the awesome. States, it's only been out since, what was it, June 26th? Okay, I think so was the official release date. A few weeks back. And so sure. right now, in comparison, it's the 40th uh, best-selling book in Crusade Studies. Um, but we haven't had any press on it here yet. There's been no reviews that have come out. So I'm hoping for, you know, hoping for the best. Gotcha. Uh, you're, you're one, you're one colleague that you mentioned that took a shot, took a public shot at the book out of goofy curiosity. What was it? What was his critique? I'm, cur- I'm oh, curious. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I read it once and I didn't read it again. Um, you know, it's just, it's Can't the kind of thing why. that, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's always interesting because the, uh, in a, if you do an academic book review in like a journal mm-hmm. and you have the space to kind of go in very delicately into the ins and outs, of the minutia and criticize, um, this was in more of, um, more of a newspaper format where part of your job is to really, really summarize it for lay people and talk about the contents, sure. uh, you know, purpose and then, and then have a couple critical comments. Right. And so it was kind of the standard, um, didn't do enough, um, should have looked at this more, uh, I think he's wrong about this, um, that sort of thing. And, you know, that's fine. Um, sure. Particularly when you run into colleagues who are working in the same area as you, which he is, um, you're just going to have that because you're all, you're reading similar things and you're you're coming to different interpretations of the history, which is what I love about history. Um, so I don't mind if uh, if people disagree with me about what I, what I said. I, I think what I put down is right, but, you know, they'll disagree and maybe we can hammer it out someday. Um, but, uh, but that's how history works. So, so hence, you know, you think the good the with the bad, and you just let it roll off your back. I've been around the game long enough. I think ten years ago it would have really bothered me. Yeah. Uh, but I've you know I've been around long enough now. It's well, like oh okay, oh good for him. Hence the seventy five. <laughs> hence the seventy five foot tall stack of books about Lincoln is like everybody's entitled to their perspective when it comes to history. Short short of short of you know for you know first source fact. You know, the like sh- short of you know original sources, which is kind of hard to come by in medieval history. You know, often run across. Oh, we got we got lots of them, but um, <laughs> the, you know, the trick is is what makes it different is in modern history you have so many sources you really have more than you can possibly deal with. Sure. Uh, but in medieval history you have fewer sources, and I and I say fewer very cautiously because you know some people say oh you don't have many sources, but um, for example we have five thousand. Ch- Charters of King Henry II of England, 5,000, all in Latin. And, you know, you can say, well, you guys don't have many sources. I say, okay, you go ahead and in your career, I want you to read and master those 5,000 charters. <laughs> and of course the answer is, uh, no. So we have, you know, we have, and that's just, that's for a 12th century king. I mean, by the time you get to the 14th and 15th century, it's off the charts. Um, so we've got more, plenty of sources, but it's more about the interpret, the careful interpretation of them. Okay. Um, they, they tend to be, you know, they're in foreign languages 
Um, so you've got the translation issues. They are written. Um, they come from very different um, provenances, um, written by people who may have been eyewitnesses, may not have been eyewitnesses. You have to look at them, their interpretive lens. And so it can get a little tricky. And particularly when you work at stuff like for the Crusades, if you have a Christian source and they're saying, oh, well, the stupid Muslims and they foolishly did this. And, and you sit there, you go, really? Mm, um, yeah. Is that a little bit of bias? Then you look at it and you say, actually, the Muslims here really pulled off something awesome. And this guy who doesn't know anything about military operations just doesn't understand what he's seeing. Um, and so you have to you have to pick through and that's you get the different interpretations of that. And the historians are going to disagree. Yeah, it's like the, um, it's like the stupid Muslims foolishly did this while the brave and courageous Richard the Lionheart triumphantly approached from the east. I'm like, OK, gotcha. Yep. All right. <laughs> and vice versa. And vice versa. You look at the Arabic sources and they're doing the same thing about the Christians. So, <laughs> you know, so sorting out bias is always a lot of fun. Sure. And uh, saying who's, who's telling the truth here? Is anyone telling the truth? Yeah. Gotcha. That's so interesting. Now, how much, how much of that, how much of that interpretive work would you say is part of the sourcing of information for a book like this, for a book like this, for you, your two previous books were exclusively targeted to the academic world. You know, this, mm -hmm. this is your first book that you really targeted towards, you know, us stupid people like me, but it was like, and also other people that happen to know what they're talking about. But for for how much how much of the work that you do is that interpretation of intent as compared to just sort of word for word? This is what was written. This is what was said. Right. So if you're writing for a more popular audience, you have to explain the sources mm -hmm. and get into their issues, their biases, their problems, uh, what they bring to the table. But you can't get too academic about it. Um, one of the things I found out from my editor as I was explaining these things, we say, well, you take this Arabic source and you say, okay, well, here's what we know about the source. He grew up here and he lived here and this is his education. And he came over here and he would da, 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 And they say, yeah, you know, that's kind of disrupting the narrative. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, we're getting lost in the biography of the guy and we're losing the story. story yeah. um, and I think for a more popular audience, you've got to keep that story going uh, to keep them interested. So a lot of discussions like that kind of sort of got relegated to the footnotes, uh, whereas in a more academic book, I'd kind of launch into it full bore um, and there'd be an expectation that you would do that. Um, and now they're in the notations. They're in an appendix. Um, those discussions get taken elsewhere. And instead, you um, you take the the shots of what's really important. So, for example, there's one historian in the book named uh, Ibn al-Athir. Um, and I point out, you know, he's critical of Saladin at various points, but then you have to point out, but he is not a witness. He's writing in the city of Mosul. Um, so he's actually far away at the time. It wasn't watching the action at the time. And you it. make that comment and then you move on. Right. Yeah. And so now the reader knows, okay, I'm not dealing with a primary witness and let's see what he has to say. Um, whereas in an academic book, I'd say, you know, that'd be the first thing. And then you drive into it and start talking about what his location brings to the table and who was in Mosul and where was, you know, and all that kind of stuff, or he which really is sort of irrelevant. Or he was so. getting, he was getting his information. Like he was not the primary source though. He wrote it, but there, there is documentation that he had seven slaves that were on site when it happened, they came back in the chariot and they all reported to him indiv independently of this <laughs> happening. And what, like that stuff, that stuff matters, I yeah. guess, more in the academic 
writings. Whereas if I if right. I'm re- if I'm reading a story about a siege, I, I I don't I don't give a shit. Like I'm just you know I don't ca- like I don't care. Just what 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 happened yeah. next? Right, that, and that's interesting to academics, and we write articles about that kind of stuff and give conference papers about it. But it really doesn't belong in a uh, in a grand narrative. Now, the problem with that is, is that when you put the narrative together, and Yale is very insistent, you know, we need to keep a good narrative flow, and I think they were right. You're going to get criticized by academics who are going to say, you know, it's too much about the story. He needs to stop and be more analytical. And I totally get that, and that's yeah. just the sacrifice you make, you know. And if you write a book that instead is just totally analytical and has no narrative then you'll satisfy the scholars, but the general public won't want to read it. And so what I think Yale, what I think Yale is really good at, what I found through the experience is sort of bridging the two, having a learned discussion while also conveying an interesting story. Explain, Um, explain to me, explain to me the faux pas there. Like what is the, like why, why isn't there just a box that you can check? That basically tells the academics to back the hell off. It's like, no, I mean, no, no offense to people in your profession, but I can't read your academic books on history. I tried. Have you have you tried? Like, I, I've tried some of. I've tried in some <laughs> cases, and it's so goddamn dense and so boring that I have no, it. Reading about something that I found interesting in a more academic type setting made me less interested and not wanting to know about the thing because it droned on and on and on. But and I know why it did. It's because historically and professionally, you have to do that. Like, that's your job. You have to do that. You have to be accurate. I want, I want the gist. I want a story. Why can't you as a professional, why can't you as a professional scholar check a box? Guys, this is like, no, no, no offense to anybody listening here, guys, this is for the dumb people. It's not for you. Please back off. This is so that this is so that those 10 billion people out there can know what the hell happened at the siege of acre. This isn't a histo- This isn't a bu- effectively is like, this is a story. It's not a book report. This is me mm. talking about giving the gist of this to the general public what call off the hounds or vice versa. Yeah. Like, you know, the, it, I can, you, I can tell by the title of a book if it's an academic book, because it's usually a hundred syllables, you know, <laughs> I can tell that it's an academic book and I choose not to read it. If I read, if I yeah. see a book that's called the siege of acre, I don't see that as an academic book. You know, yeah. I don't see that as an academic book. Why don't scholars effectively pay the same respect like why what and i i don't mean that to be mean i don't mean it to be aggressive but though it might come off that way like why can't they why can't people effectively in your line of work see that difference and effectively back off when it's not their territory what what is that well i think i think that here's the here's the issue you're you're wrestling with right there is history that People want to read, which is great. Mm -hmm. And people have historical interests, right? And that's, Mm -hmm. that's fantastic. But the primary, well, people will argue with me about this, right? This, uh, but here's what the primary purpose of history is not to entertain. It is not to, um, please the general public. Mm -hmm. It is not to convey stories in fun ways. The purpose of history to me, and this is where people disagree is a search for truth. Mm -hmm. You are looking to, try to accurately describe what happened in the past as the people in the past would have seen it. 
And you know, some people have called that sort of like the noble dream or the noble purpose of history, right? Mm-hmm. Is important thing number one, the idea that you have to get the historical record right before you can have a good time talking about it, right? Okay. Then that explains why you're going to have dense academic writing um, where you're going to have things with, with some jargon that you're, you know, a lay person wouldn't understand, um, technical descriptions that might seem pretty boring, uh, because you're essentially correcting the historical record. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is, that is, I, w- I would argue the primary purpose of the historical craft. Everything comes after that. Teaching comes after that. First comes after that. Um, you know, you're, you're looking to get the record um, clear first. And so there are some scholars who are very much in that vein, and that is how they define themselves as historians, mm-hmm. right? And it's not that is not a betrayal of the discipline, but it's straying from the discipline's primary purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a philosophical position, right? And so I understand when they come after and they say, you know, this needs to be more technical and whatnot. Um, to broaden it out, to take it to a bigger audience, I think is also important. It's, um, you know, you can say it's secondary in a philosophical sense, but if you want to get practical about it, you know, we are being paid by people to um, have our jobs. I was going to say, you're, at teach. the end of the day, at the end of the day, you're a teacher. <laughs> yeah. At the end of right, the day, the you're a teacher. Day, you do need to bring it to the wider audience, but I think there, you know, I think there's a place for both. There's a place for the incredibly dense writing mm-hmm. and the uh, the legwork of history, the the hard, the heavy lifting, um, and then there is a place for uh, for making it accessible, and that's where you get more popular histories and uh, public history, and um, you, you bring in all of the other um, parts of remembering the past, things like museums and whatnot. For those sorts of things for the public, um, but there are some who just they like the nuts and bolts of it, and uh, they want other people to do the nuts and bolts too. And I, you know, I can understand that, but I can see how for a layperson you sit there and say, "Why does it have to be so boring?" Well, you know, that the nuts and bolts are kind of boring. Well, it's like and, when you look and, at a mechanic and, work. And I look, I'm, I I'm looking know. at. I'm looking at it from the perspective. I'm looking at it from the perspective of I understand that there should be both, but I also mm-hmm. understand that they're not the they're not the same things. I was like, I'm sure. stupid, and I understand that they're not the same things. I don't understand, nor do I need the level of detail that you need professionally. I don't need right. that. So why, why can't the other side of the coin? Why can't the academic field lay off of a book that's clearly not addressed to them? Like, because at the end of the day, this is me taking off of my. You're taking off your researcher hat. You're putting on your teacher hat. I'm telling a story so that the general population can hear it. So I, yeah, I, th- I think you're right that it needs to be accessible. And I think most historians, you, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who's just stuck in an archive saying, you know, kind of grousing and saying, you know, um, we shouldn't write for the public. I think most historians and most scholars, I think, uh, would agree that things need to be accessible to the public, right? Um, there is a trick to it in doing it However, with the sufficient academic rigor, right? So um, I'm going to use a bad analogy here. Imagine if you're reading um, a lab report from a chemistry lab, right? Mm-hmm. Would you, so you've got this dense report. It's got like 16 authors on it, right? It's got all this math and stuff. How do you take that and make it into an interesting book? I have no earthly it's idea. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah. 
Now, see, with science, that, that makes sense, right? Because you say, oh, well, there's all these figures and they're talking about organic chemistry and that, that's a really hard thing. You can't just take that and make it translatable. It's really hard. Well, I would say history is the same thing. History is just as technical. It's technical in a different way, right? Um, you know, if I'm arguing over how a um, Arabic word is pronounced uh, or um, the proper Latin rendering of something, it's technical. It's, it's in the same degree. Uh, but yet there's an expectation that we're able to do it and, and to make a story out of it. Mm. It can be done. It can be done. Um, but it's hard to do it. It's very hard to do it. And people who go out and try to do it sometimes, and this has been shown in the past, I mean, you look at a lot of books, they go way too far and they lose that academic rigor, right? I was just reading a book review of a book on um, Stalin and the kulaks in the Ukraine in the 1920s, right? Mm. And okay. it was just getting ripped up and down. Um, but it was a book, this book by Ann Applebaum. And it was like, this is written for a popular audience. But in the process, she had left out all kinds of data and alternative talking points. Or this, that's what this reviewer was alleging, right? I'm not, I haven't read the book. Uh, but he's saying basically in her quest to make an accessible, popular book, she ended up getting the history completely wrong. And so you've got a popular book that everybody's going to read, but it's wrong, right? And yeah. so that's the risk you run into. And so, you know, we, we have a gatekeeping function where we say, you know, we, we need to review things and make sure they're right. We want to make it accessible to the popular audience. you got to make sure that the rigor stays in it. How do you do that and keep it stylistically palatable to the general reader? That's where the art form comes in. You need good editors. You need a good publisher. You need a good writer. Um, and so I think because we've been burned so many times, <laughs> mm -hmm. people are kind of quick to pull the trigger and say, oh, it's too popular, you know. Um, and it's yeah, it's like Hollywood movies, right? Braveheart's a terrible movie historically. I mean, it's mm -hmm. awful. It's almost completely wrong in every aspect. Uh, <laughs> but that's what people are watching. So you say, well, if we want a movie to be out about William Wallace, we want it to be right. And when it comes out and it's so wrong and you have students coming to your college classroom thinking that the medieval Scots actually painted their face blue and wore kilts. Um, <laughs> you know, now, now you're stuck with the popular rendering has prejudiced their view of history and prying them away from that is really hard. Sure. Trying to convince them, you know, the Celt wasn't invented till, you know, not that long ago. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a medieval thing, but in their minds, it will always be medieval Scottish dress. And that's the worry. If you go too popular, then you end up people that what they have in their head is not actually history. It's a false view of history. It's wrong. And that's the thing that kind of scares us the most when people get it so wrong, because how do you get them back? Well, how, how often, how often in those examples of ones when they go so wrong was the, was the work produced by someone who is within that community and a legitimate source within that community? Like that, that what, what I'm kind of getting at with that is like for, for me, the average guy that's interested in history. I'm not a, I'm not a historical scholar nor a historian, but I'm interested in history and I'm fascinated by history. How does somebody that's a non-academic consumer, you know, consumer of history find reasonably accurate sources of historical information without having to read an 800 page book on an event that took two days? Like sure. how sure. does, how does somebody, how does somebody like me find you know, accurate, accurate information that I can actually read without wanting to bludgeon my wife with the book, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, I think the, um, 
Well, I mean, there's different ways to do it. Book reviews are a great way to do it. There's so many of them online now. Mm-hmm. Find it. You know, you got to do. You got to do a little bit of work to, um, you know, to find these things. Um, got to snoop around and say, I see this book on Amazon. Um, is it a good book? Is you look at the publisher? Is it self-published? If it is, don't read it. Now, that's just my bias. But if you're talking about history, if it's good enough to be written, it should be peer-reviewed. Mm-hmm. It can't just be self-published. And so you run from that. If you say, oh, well, it's about a um, massively consequential event and it's only 80 pages long, I would suggest that's not enough to talk about a massively <laughs> consequential event, right? I see, um, I see, I see the, siege of, the siege of Acre for Dummies com- coming to a bookstore near you. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and you, you got to do a little bit of, you know, use critical thinking skills and look at it and say, you know, if I found a review online by somebody who's got a university position, not that you have to have a university position, but or who is an independent scholar who has judged this book to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. Then that's a good indication, right? You got to do a little bit of legwork. Um, you know, it's like buying CDs, you know, you say, oh, Muse has a new CD out. Does it rock? Because a lot of them haven't rocked lately, right? So you read a review <laughs> and you find out, oh, they rediscovered the electric guitar. Okay, I think I'll buy this one, right? Um, it's the same sort of thing. Um, you have to apply those kinds of skills to find the good history. And I would say, um, don't be shy about writing to historians. Um, I've got, I get requests, uh, fairly regularly. I just get emails in my box saying, hi, uh, professor Hostler, you don't know me, but I'm so-and-so and I'm, I'm looking at this. Do you have a recommendation? I read back. I'm like, yeah, check out these three books. Uh, I think you'll find them accessible and easy to get through. Um, and that's a good way to start on this subject. And then if they, if you have questions later on, want to get deeper into it, into the nuts and bolts, then write to me again and I'll have more sources for you. Um, and most academics are, are pretty happy to do that. You'll find a few grouches or like, who is this person? Right. You know, but, um, it's like, but, if you're, you know, if you're interested in that, you need to come to my seminar. I'm like, okay. Yeah, there are still some types like that, but most people are pretty generous. And honestly, when I get somebody who says, you know, I'm just really interested in third crusade, then I say, wow, it's really great to run into people who are interested in the same things I am. Yeah. Um, and I want to nurture, that's where the teacher comes out, right? You want to nurture that curiosity and give them something that won't repel them. Right. Yeah. But I would add one more thing and yeah. this, and this one you might not like, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Okay. Right? We, we always talk about this in terms of the historians making it accessible for the people. I'm going to turn this around. Okay. Sometimes, and depending on what subject it is, how complicated it is, how obscure it is, Sometimes I'm sorry, but it really is up to the layperson to get educated and to learn how to read the tough stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are just some subjects out there where there is not going to be an easy, accessible book, or it hasn't been written yet. Give me, give me, an, give me an example. Of that. Give me an example of a situation it. like that. Uh, well, look, the um, let me think of a good example. Uh, Okay. Well, I mean, the science example comes to mind, right? Sure. Um, You know, there's books like Darwin for dummies and that kind of stuff. But if you really want to read about evolutionary biology, you know, you've got to um, you've got to bone up on your science. Yeah, and you've got to read Origin of the Species, and you've got to yeah that that wasn't that wasn't written for the layperson, and it was very well done. It was not written for the layperson, and it's one of those books that you should just read, right? you know, it's, I mean, some things where I say, like, you know, there, there is no good book on the Third Crusade yet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have to patch it together from scholarly articles, from cursory treatments. Um, you're just going to have to go down that road. There's some books, I would say, particularly about, um, like, French history mm-hmm. is a good example. 
most of the, the really good books about French medieval history are in French. Yeah. And he would say, you know, it's like when a grad student would come to me and say, I'm interested and I want to write a, a book about the Portuguese slave trade, you know, the slave trade to Brazil. And I say, well, how's your Portuguese? Right. Because mm-hmm. the books are going to be in Portuguese. And they say, oh, well, I don't know how to read Portuguese. Yeah, the and, good and my sources. Is, yeah. Well, go learn. Yeah. Learn how to read Portuguese, right? Uh, because not everything's translated in English. And so you're going to have those moments where, you know, if I'm going to say, well, honestly, uh, actually, I was just talking to a, a colleague today and I said, you know, I was interested in um, um, sapping operations on World War I battlefields. And I said, can you have me, can you give me, direct me to some things about tunneling in trench warfare? Right. And he said, well, I can think of three right off the top of the bat, but the best one's in French. I said, that's fine. Send it to me. I can read French. Um, but if I didn't have that skill, then what do you do? Do you go to the second best book? Do you go to the third best book? Yeah. Or do you go to the one that you really need to read? Well, you go to the one that you really need to read. So what I would say is, um, yes, there's a lot of academic writing that is really boring. I read it all the time. Right. Um, but sometimes it's, it can be rewarding to say, you know what, this is a really hard book and I'm going to dig into it and I'm going to, I'm going to beat it. I'm going to master this book anyway. Um, and I think that's a good thing for lay people to do once in a while to challenge themselves and to push themselves into the nuts and bolts of a discipline and say, this is not my uh, cup of tea. This is not my experience, but I'm going to see if I can meet them on their terms. Well, you know what and, I mean? Yeah, I, I see what you mean. And, and I agree. And I, that, that touches on another point that I wanted to bring up that's sort of along this line, which was the for and this is something that's very much directed to a request that I got from a member of the audience that actually I mentioned that I was going to be talking to you and wanted me to sort of mm-hmm. circle around this topic. Like okay. the one, one of the reasons why I'm so interested in history and I know it's one of the things, just based on the long chats that you and I have had in the past, prior to leaving Maryland for a really, really flat state, was... Kansas is not as flat as you think. Fair. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, damn it, I've seen Wizard of Oz. Don't, 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 it's like, don't screw with my imagery. Anyway, um, the, the, why I find history so fascinating beyond the fact that it the the subject of history completely ruined fiction for me mm-hmm. because like just read, reading a good historical historical account of you know anything is short of short of fairies flying around beats almost any fiction book i've ever heard but wait as in like wait a second this shit actually happened like i don't have to read a made up story to hear sure. this fascinating potential outcome. This actually happened somewhere and you can read about real historical accounts of things happening. Now, uh, carrying that to the next level, the the thing that's so fascinating to me about history is that ri- his historical events ring through ring through the ages as they say all the way up until today. People that are living today are living with the results of shit that happened in the past. The, right. the the political problem the political problems that we face on a day-to-day basis these are problems that didn't start you know today didn't start yesterday didn't start in 2016 didn't start in 2008 like there there is there is shit that we fight about today that started thousands of years ago whether we know it or not so 
one of the th- one of the things that I find so important about history is understanding the root behind some of the bickering that we deal with today. So like if you've got somebody and this is the question that I got from somebody in the audience was if you have somebody that is for lack of a better term politically inept like not not shown any real interest in politics but has recently but is doing so from the perspective of wait a minute how the hell did we get here Yeah like what what can people do that are politically that are somewhat politically new to the game. Like what can they do to relate historic history to modern day? Like, is there, is there a line of history? Like, is there a line of professional historians like yourself that that's their job? Is they, your job is to sort of draw the connecting lines between you know, the first crusade and the modern Palestinian Israeli conflict or the, what, whatever, whatever lines you want to connect from here to there to wherever, like, is there a line in your profession that does that? Or if not, if somebody that's listening, like they want to learn how the hell we got here. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated about it is because history does sort of teach you how we got here as long as you follow the trail all the way through to today. Mm-hmm. But how, I mean, if, if you're talking to a, if you're talking to a student that's interested in this topic, like how do you address that? Like how, how can I learn about history, but not just learn about history blindly. I want to learn what the hell happened that got us to where we are. Like, how would you approach that? Mm. I know it's probably a well, big I think question, you have to be, but you have to be, you have to approach it cautiously, right? I mean, like you, you made the point about the Crusades and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? I would argue that the two really have nothing to do with each other. Okay. Um, now there are some who would disagree with me, right? And the temptation is to sit there and say, "Oh, we've kind of seen this sort of thing before in this area, right?" Um, my response would be, well, wait a minute, you know, the first crusade, those were Christians and they killed community of Jews on their way to the Holy Land. So I'm not sure how this equates to Jews fighting Muslims, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, there's some differences right off the bat. Now, other people would say, well, yeah, but it's a it's a locus of conflict, right? And it's religion and it's if you want to call it Samuel Huntington's clash of civilizations, which a lot of historians reject now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's real easy to go back in the past, any time in the past and say, I think I found causation. Mm-hmm. This caused this or the more dangerous one. This caused this, which caused this, which caused this, which caused this. Yeah. Um, this, this string of um, causation, you begin to you know as teleology where you look back and say, you know, everything has been moving to this point. Um, you can, you can draw a lot of false connections. Um, it's real easy to do it and you can get very single minded about it. You can say, I think I found the cause and not realize that there's actually 20 other contributing causes, um, that you haven't looked into that you haven't considered. Um, so it can be difficult. What, what I say to students is I say, start with the basics. Can you see the past the way people saw it when they were alive then? Mm-hmm. Start with that. And that it that requires understanding somebody else's perspective. If you can't, I don't think you can do history if you can't 
understand someone else's perspective. If you have, if you know somebody who just says, uh, this is the way I see the world and, and I refuse to see it the way anyone else does, or even try to see it the way other people, those people don't do good history. They just can't. Um, because you, you have to have some kind of empathy on some level about what people have been through, how they looked at things, that sort of thing. Right? Once you understand that, then you're going to start to see commonalities. I mean, you just are because the human experience is, I mean, it is vast and it's multifaceted, but there are some commonalities over time. People fall in love. People fall out of love. There's hatred. There's anger. There's war. You know, politics, politicians come about. Governments have to do certain things. You know, there are commonalities. Um, and so you'll start finding them. And if you can personally trace them to things that are going on today, then that's an important thing to do in your mind. It's a good mental exercise, right? Mm-hmm. At that point, now here's where the caution comes in, right? And this is, you know, I was just um, arguing this with a, uh, with a, with a friend. Um, what is the job of a historian in showing those connections? Is it even a job of the historian to show those connections? To come out and say, here is how we got to something today. There are some who would say that's not our business. That our business is to write about the past as the people saw it, and then you let other people make those determinations, right? But you let lay people read it and say, hey, that sounds like so-and-so, right? Other people say, no, it's actually our obligation to get into that and to sort of argue for history's relevance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If I were to put it into a scientific framework, imagine a climatologist working in a lab at a university, right? Okay. And she discovers that through her climate models, uh, there is some variance in the uh, temperatures of the earth. Mm-hmm. Should she then take those findings, so she publishes them, right? Should she then walk over to Capitol Hill with her reports and lobby for climate policy, right? Okay. Saying, I found a link, and this is what I think we should do about it, right? Some would say she has a moral obligation to do so, and otherwise she would be reckless. And others would say, yes, but you're not a policymaker. You have, you don't know what you're doing in this category. You but you can stick publish to the, the lab. Let other people use your research for their, their own purposes. For whatever right? they do. Yes. Okay. It's, it's not a perfect analogy, but the, but the point is, is no, you know, that, what, no, what is it? No, that's a analogy, yeah. Yeah. And if you think about it as a discipline, well, like I said before, if I'm on a quest for the truth, then that's what I should be doing. I should be looking for the truth and drawing connections between yesterday and today. It's not as important to me. Um, it's frankly, like if you read my book, you won't see any projection between the siege of acre and modern conflicts. Um, it's, it's, it's in a place where modern conflicts take place. It's part of the history of the area. It's definitely part of a lineage, part of a heritage. But did the Siege of Acre influence anything 100 years after it, 200 years after it, 500 years after it? That's not territory I like to wander into personally, right? Okay. I, you know, in class, I expound on that. We always, you always kick that kind of stuff around in history class. You say, yeah, let's talk about that and let's find, you know, are there legitimate connections? But in terms of arguing for a connection. So what I would tell students is just um, do those mental exercises. Learn the history first. Then kick around the ideas. Does it apply today? If you think it does, that's great. But don't assume that you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Um, you'll probably find out down the road at some point um, that there were some intervening events that were um, that contributed um, as much or a lot more than the thing you think started off. So, like when people come around and say, "Well, that was, you know, the First Crusade. That was the beginning of European colonialism." And you 
say, really? That was the beginning. That's when it started. Uh, really? Okay. That's when it started. And then you say, well, what is colonialism? Right. And you say, you start talking about things and you realize, oh, uh, it doesn't actually, these don't actually look like colonies. Well, okay. So now we're getting complicated and we're arguing about details. Um, yeah. So, but I think, but I think anyone who, like the person who asked you that question, anyone who is interested in drawing a connection should absolutely be reading history because your mind is going to do those exercises. It forces you to think critically. And that's always a good thing. Um, you just need to cap it with saying, you know, I probably don't have the answer. Um, most historians should admit as well. I probably don't have the definitive answer. Um, certainly the students I teach now at the uh, command and general staff college, we, we tell them all the time, history doesn't provide answers. It helps you ask better questions. That's the critical faculty you're looking for. Now that that's a great, that's a fantastic point about now the, the follow-up that I have to that is, you know, how, how difficult is it for you? Cause you, you mentioned where you, where you're working now at and you mentioned where you're working now and obviously just sort of by the nature of the university i would ima i would imagine the lion's share of your students are american huh. can't imagine why i believe that but anyway the ha your area your area of expertise predates by a wide margin not wide in the in the realm of history really but a wide margin predates the existence of this country like is this is that an approach the way that you just described it is that an approach that seems to for lack of a better way of asking this does that approach work better for students from europe who live in a who live on a street where the sidewalks are older than our country or <laughs> is that an approach that's equally approachable by 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 kids or you know young adults here in the U.S. that have an interest in this, but that just don't have the historical context. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think. I mean, I would like to think it's applicable to everybody. Um, there are some societies that do specifically look to history for answers, um, particularly in, in what I teach for in military history. They look to history for military answers, right? Um, Colin Gray, who writes about military strategies, argued that Americans in that sense are sort of ahistorical. Um, we don't look to history for answers. We look to history for questions. Right? Mm. Um, and, you know, there's, there's different values in each one. But if you're looking for a solution in the past, people who want to go down that road, which I, I don't agree with and say, well, history is going to repeat itself. Um, if it does, if history is cyclical, then... Yeah, then look for answers in the past, right? Because you're going to have the same situation. You can apply the same solution. But most historians, I think, and not just American historians, I think this is um, in many parts of the world, don't see history as cyclical. They see it as linear. Um, it's, it's changing. It's different every time. But you never have the same circumstances twice. Um, and so in that, to that extent, if you look for the answer, then you'll have an answer, but you'll find it probably doesn't apply the way you thought it did. <laughs> and then you'll be stuck. Right. Um, but but there are people who go down that route um, who say, you know, that the answers are in the past. Um, I think it's it can be problematic. It can be problematic. And most of my students say, yeah, I, I have a lot of American students, but we have um, over 100 um, foreign uh, countries that send their officers to our um, to our program. And so in every class, we have the luxury of having the American perspective as well as an international perspective. And that sort of helps things where you can kick around and sometimes get into their country's own history and look for examples. Mm. 
Yeah. But that's a trick. People, that, that phrase, history repeats itself. That yeah. is, I mean, if, if we, we could talk about that a long time, that can get you into some dangerous territory. Hmm. Um, I, I like, I like Mark, Twa- I like Mark Twain's twist on that one. Do you, do you know his comment about history? Yeah. It doesn't um, yeah, repeat his, it wrong. His history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. <laughs> the one we have is um, history doesn't repeat itself. Stupidity repeats itself. Hmm. Or the, uh, the, the more cynical one, history doesn't repeat itself. Historians repeat each other. <laughs> Which is again, but I mean, like, so you'll see it on Facebook, right? Just look for the memes, and somebody will there'll be something happening today, and they'll say, "Oh, this is just like," and you know, usually it's Hitler in the Munich conference or something, right? Uh, But you know, this is just like that, or this is just like that, or this is gonna lead to that because it led to that before. You sit there and you're like, "No, the conditions are completely different. Um, There are affinities, there are similarities, but it's not the same thing. It just isn't." For sure. Um, and, and this is how people get into flame wars on Facebook. And, and, you know, it's like with the recent immigration things, I saw a lot of people saying, this is how the Holocaust started. And you say, really, that that's the road you're going down. You know, this is the same as the Holocaust. And instantly, if you really sit and just think about it, you go, okay, obviously it's not the same thing as the Holocaust. Right. Yeah. But the temptation is to go back and say, ah, history is repeating itself. So that's why I say it gets you, it's, it can be a very dangerous statement in many ways. Well, for in, in the, in the modern day, in the modern day court course of political discourse, I mean, that, that's sort of where we are today. You know, how, how do you combat that? Or how, how do you combat comments like that? I mean, do you, do you try to engage or if that, if that's the approach that's being taken, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, I know where you are on the political spectrum, but I'll be nice and not, not ask the, the, if, if that's, sort of where the conversation is going like is that is that a tact that you try to use in conversation or frankly do you just if that's the approach that's coming at you you just sort of realize it's a it's a lost cause and don't bother engaging like how how do you handle that situation well for me i've been trying to get you know over time and i think i've done a pretty good job of it less and less and less political um not just on social media but just in general i just I don't, I, I've become much very cynical about politics. Hmm. Um, and, and actually, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a registered undeclared right now. I don't actually belong to a political party. Uh, I was just sort of fed up with all of it. But, um, you know, it depends. Like, I think it's like anything, you know, social media, right? There are some people who are interested in um, dialoguing and talking and learning. My wife is great at this. She goes into Facebook and she wants to talk and she wants to, like, wrangle over ideas. And, you know, and, and when you when you have people like that, that's great. You can do that. But a lot of people just, you know, the mind is set one way or another and it's not a conversation. No. It gets into a debate. And the scary thing is I've seen, you know, like friendships destroyed on Facebook because of this kind of stuff. Yeah, that is too. just not good. I mean, we are nobody is benefiting from that. So my attack is usually I'll go in and I'll say my piece. I'll say something like, you know, you said this and this are the same. I don't think it's because of this. And then as soon as you get the response, which is da 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 or whatever, then you just say, you know, okay, I'm, I'm done. I made, I said my point and, um, and now I'm just going to back away and do something else. Yeah. Um, and if they, and sometimes I'll tell people, if you want to talk about this more, I've actually read a little bit about this, you know, send me a message and I'd you know, be to talk about it. Cause there are some things maybe you want to think about. Um, but you know, some people that, that, you know, they don't want to hear that. Um, <laughs> so I'd rather keep friendships and, um, then, then get into flame wars with people. So I tend to always, I'm, you know, if someone's going to back away, it's probably going to be me. 
at least okay. on social media. Because uh, I just I just don't think it's profitable at the end of the day. Gotcha. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I've been I've been follow I've been following along with a lot of these characters that sort of that were featured in that New York Times article recently the, about the intellectual dark web. Like, oh, I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I, I've I've been I've been following along with a lot of the guy a lot a lot of the guys and gals in that in that crew that were featured in there, and it it is really fascinating to see how that that take of being either not necessarily you know apolitical you can be very political but be open to having a conversation with somebody and not start a flame war it's a yeah. it's amazing listening to the conversations that come about it, like i've i learn so much when hearing two people that couldn't possibly be closer you know they couldn't possibly be farther away in their political ideology their social ideology their religious perspective you know they, they couldn't possibly be farther apart but they respect each other as human beings and they actually have a conversation and it is amazing the outcome that you can see but it's scary how how rare that is today yeah it, it is it, it's tough and and you know when, when you talk when you're dealing with history we're used to dealing with you know varying interpretations and so you know you you learn to you try to be cordial but you even see in um you know it used to be before social media we talked about like footnote wars where well-known scholars <laughs> would just savage each other in footnotes you know and just um you know compare each other to hitler and all this stuff and so <laughs> it's it's always been there <laughs> But now it's just so much easier to get into it. And, so speaking, uh, speaking there are of people that I love in person and I hate them online. <laughs> so, so, so in this thing about history, not repeating, but it does rhyme. So it's actually you historians that started all this shit on Facebook, actually with the footnotes. Uh, it's like, so, sure so damn it, it. <laughs> damn it. It's, damn it. It's your fault. It's your, it's your, well, maybe it is. Who knows? Now I'm going to no. We, well, we, we always blame Zuckerberg, right? That's the answer. Fair uh, enough. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, John. I, I, you know, I th this this conversation isn't great. I, I really don't want to hold you up too much longer. The, um, I, just, I think that's a great solid place to wrap up. But I just wanted to ask you one quick, quick last question. It's the, uh, the question that I ask every every guest on the show, uh, just to sort of wrap things up. Just kind of getting back to the concept of the show, which is small moves. Like, what are the things that people can do to sort of just get a little bit better at whatever the heck it is that you happen to be good at? Um, what purchase have you made in recent memory of $100 or less that's had the biggest impact on your life in recent memory? This is something that this can apply to your work. It can apply to your home life. It can apply to anything. There's no, there's no restrictions on this. It can be about stuff that we've talked about. It could be about nothing of which we've discussed. Like, can you think of anything that would fall into that category? Uh, that would absolutely change my life. That, I mean, that, that's had, that's had the biggest impact on your life recently. Like it doesn't have to have completely fundamentally change your life though. That would be nice. The, yeah. But no, I mean, if there, if you've come across like a $7, like a $7 app that has made your life monumentally <laughs> easier or, you know, a noisemaker that finally gets the youngest kid to shut up and sleep through the night so that you and your wife can actually get a nice, decent night's sleep. What, you know, whatever, whatever that thing is just kind of cat, Cap the price point at about a hundred bucks if you can. And can you think of anything that fits that category? Yeah. Well, there's, you know, there's nothing that I've, you know, no item that I purchased that I can really think of besides, you know, I mean, the, the easy one would be say, you know, the engagement ring I gave to my wife. Um, but that's not below a hundred dollars. Right. No. So, um, 
I, you know, this is going to sound self-serving, but I've, you remember you told me about this several months ago, so I, I had given it some thought. This is going to sound very self-serving, right? Um, right now, I'm the president for an organization called De Re Militare, okay. which is the Society for Medieval Military History. And we're, we're all the scholars who do the kind of stuff that I do and other things. And, um, you know, we're, we're all colleagues and we have this society. And probably one of the best moves I ever made was becoming a member of the society for $30, I think. Um, I think that's all it was, $30 to join De Re Militare. And, and um, that really was, that little thing really did change everything because it was just sort of formally joining an organization of like interest, not like-minded, but like interested people, um, people who had the same fascinations and interests about the past that I did, um, and joining with them formally and not just, you know, seeing them once in a while and saying hello, but saying, you know, I want to be in an organization that, that you all are in, uh, you men and women who are doing these things. And I think that fee just opened up so many doors for me. Um, it just, you know, you, you got to meet people and you got to listen to their research and they would listen to yours and they would give you a helping hand. You could write to them and say, you know, I'm a, I'm a fellow day Ray member. Would you mind taking a look at this? And they, um, and they would, and it was just a real generous group. And as a new scholar, as somebody sort of going through their graduate program and, and coming out and, and not knowing the vast landscape of academia and how it operates, not just in terms of scholarship, but also, you know, the job market and uh, interpersonal relationships and the, the, the nuts and bolts of, of, of learning how to be an academic. Uh, it really was just the right move. And it was so small. It was just 30 bucks. Um, it was 30, 35 dollars. It was something like that. It was it, it wasn't wasn't much as a grad student. I didn't make any money. So it seemed like a lot at the time. <laughs> um, but it really wasn't much money. And I remember my my dissertation advisor told me, um, one year he said, you know, I sort of envy you. You've got this little group that is uh, so tight knit and you have your little meetings and you've got your journal and it, you're just kind of all together. And, uh, he's like, and I don't really have anything like that. And a lot of scholars don't have anything like that. You can join something like the American historical association, which has thousands of members. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but this is a group with, you know, 50, hundred members and you tend to see the same two or three dozen all the time. Um, that was probably the purchase that really, got me on my way as a historian. Um, so that would be the small move that I made. I think, I think if for anybody listening, if you have a passion for something and there is an organization that is centered on that passion, then I would say somehow get active with them. Because once you are um, interacting with people who share your passions, then it just, everything gets better. Everything gets better. You don't feel alone and saying, well, you know, I like this and no, none of my other friends do. You turn out that there's actually a lot of people in the world that probably like what you like. Yeah, and if you sure. can, if you can hook up with them and you guys can all, you know, take care of each other and help each other out, it just, uh, it, it just makes your, um, your interest or your profession or whatever it is just so much more meaningful, so much more, more rewarding. And so that would be the, uh, the small move I made, uh, that really made a, a huge life changing difference for me. That's great. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely, I definitely back you up there. That's finding a group of like-minded people is a lot easier, especially today. It's a lot easier. Thanks to the evil Mark Zuckerberg. It is a lot easier to find like-minded, <laughs> but it's true. You know, it is, it's true. I mean, that there's going, but going beyond sort of like a Facebook group onto like an actual membership organization that has events and has conferences and whatnot. You can actually find other 
Cronin's like other evolved primates that have the same that share the same interests as you. Yeah, 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 absolutely. For sure. Yeah. And um, like you said, yeah, it's a lot easier to do these days, but it's it's still surprising. I think yeah, I keep running into people who say, you know, well, yeah, yeah, I've always liked this. And well, you know I'm the only one who does this. And I say, well, okay, you know, and like I said, it's self-serving because I'm president of the society right now. So of course I'm gonna promote it. Um but um, you know, say, hey, look, here's what we're about. We'd love to have you come to one of our meetings. And when they do, you shake their hand and you say, Welcome, have a seat, you know, and um, you know, let's talk shop and then Hopefully they keep coming back and they keep coming back and, um, and you've got a new, um, got a new friend, got a new, um, colleague and everyone benefits from those, those sorts of associations. That is awesome. Dr. Hostler, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the show. I'm really glad that you listened through to the end with this one. This is a great conversation with Dr. Hustler, my buddy, John Hustler. I really appreciate you sticking through it uh, really quick before you go. Don't forget to check out his book. It really is interesting. The, you can find the link to it on Amazon in the show notes of this page. And also don't forget to follow me on Twitter. You can find me at Jason Hertzberger. Thanks a lot for listening to the show. And I will talk to you guys next time around. You've got this. You've got this.